Um, now we're back in the in, in the dangerous situation of if North Korea does go ahead with a satellite launch, then a lot of this falls apart very quickly. This is Mike Lee News, a conversation with Washington-based Korea analyst Jenny Town. She's managing editor of 38 North, the web journal that published these commercial satellite photos, which reportedly show that North Korea has already rebuilt its Sohei satellite test and launch site. I asked Jenny Town to explain where we now stand in efforts to prevent an escalation of the nuclear arms tension between North Korea and the United States. Well, I think the inability to get a deal out of Hanoi um, really deflated the diplomatic process. Um, there were there was a pretty high expectation that we were very close to a deal, that we should have been able to get something very interim as sort of preliminary steps to start working on um, while we figure out the rest of the story. Um, it's disappointing to know how far away we were from agreement um, on key issues that held up this uh, this potential interim deal. Um, and. You know, while both sides were, were very careful to leave the door open for, you know, future diplomacy um, and, and characterize this in a very positive way um, and with the intention to keep negotiating, um, it's very difficult to see how we maintain that momentum um, past this setback, um, especially now that you have um, some of these uh, signals coming out post-summit of North Korea restarting um, reversing one of its unilateral measures um, and rebuilding the facilities at the Sohei Satellite Launching Station, um, the launch pad and the engine test stand, and you hear um, Congress and you hear Bolton and you hear other people in the administration already talking about imposing new sanctions on North Korea. This is all sending us you know, in a downward spiral here. Um, and if we don't get back to talks right away, it's going to be very difficult to get back to talks in the future. You've used the words unexpected and disappointment or implied that. Why, what makes you think that there was a deal to be made that fell through? I mean, what information did you have? Uh, because we don't know, as I understand it, what the decision makers inside either government really knew or planned to know or mm -hmm. were planning on. So on what basis can you say that a deal, a big deal, was expected? Well, I wouldn't say a big deal. <laughs> a little deal was expected. Um, and I think there were very positive signs coming from the Trump administration and coming from Ambassador Began, especially in the speech that he gave at Stanford um, a couple weeks before the summit, where he did lay out some specifics of things that they had discussed. Um, and you would assume that they would only say these publicly if there was a, a very good understanding that they were um, likely to happen. Um, or had been at least received well. Um, I think there, there were signs, there were some talk, there were some leaks coming out of some very preliminary steps um, that were very reasonable steps, um, nothing too dramatic, uh, but were certainly implementable and especially implementable in a short time frame um, that you know it did sound like they were moving, they were planning to move forward with it, as well as the idea of the schedule itself had, already um, had already penciled in a signing ceremony <laughs> for a deal. Uh, I think there were some leaks that said that the deal was basically three quarters of the way penned and it was just waiting for you know the conclusion. 
um, and that they were still working out some last minute details. What it sounds like um, from the reporting, and it's been hard to piece together the full story, is that once um, the two sides got to Hanoi um, for the last round of pre-summit negotiations, um, this is where uh, one side or the other or both sides started to up the ante to see what more they could get in this preliminary deal. And I think that's when things really started to fall apart. Uh, do you have what you feel is a confident uh, understanding of what happened there in terms of what what you might say went wrong, although some people might say it went right? Um, I think we have a pretty good readout of the higher demands that were asked. Um, it's still very unclear the actual sequencing of, of who went first in, in, like I said, in trying to up the ante. Um, some accounts are, you know, that the North Koreans had, had up the ante first. Um, there's some accounts that they might have actually even indicated this before they got to Hanoi, um, in which case, again, it is a bit unfortunate that they didn't postpone um, the summit to be able to work out these details. There was some talk, I think, in, in one of your discussions at your organization that Kim had parked one of his locomotives uh, for yeah. a train uh, in China, and the inference would have been that he planned to visit China after a successful summit, and a big deal might mm -hmm. have been signed. So there right. again might be signs or indications that uh, a deal might have been, indeed been in the offing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the Chinese were expecting a deal to be signed. The South Koreans were expecting a deal to be signed. Um, I think a lot of us that have been, you know, kind of keyed into this process expected a deal to be signed. Um, so it was surprising how badly things fell apart. <laughs> um, and, and like I said, and, and really disappointing because it really does set back the whole process now. Um, you know, one, it, it might help Trump look like a, you know, a more tough negotiator, but at the same time, it also means there's nothing in place at the moment. There's no restrictions. Um, there's no benchmarks. There's no indicators of, you know, where we're going and how we're going to get there. And we're basically, you know, the rhetoric is moving back towards square one of now we need to get everything because we can't trust even like little things, you know, to be able to get even a small deal at, the, at this time. Well, to put it in super simple terms, I suppose that you and a lot of experts were hoping for a give and take a process, and now we're into an all or nothing process. Well, we started with an all or nothing process, and we had started to get out of that mindset. And I think there had been a learning curve over the past, you know, seven, eight months um, from the administration and from the North Koreans as well as what won't work. Um, and then, but then it sounds like when they got to Hanoi, they went back to, instead of, you know, the, the policy had evolved, they were ready to talk about a more incremental approach and inter incremental agreement, you know, start here with something and then work towards something more. Um, and then, yeah, it sounds like at Hanoi, both sides, you know, up the ante until we were back to um, that all or nothing approach that we know doesn't work to begin with. Well, the flip side, of thinking might be that maybe Trump's walk away will in the end work better. Uh, do you discount that completely? I, again, seeing the reaction 
um, to what's happening, um, I'm not hopeful. <laughs> I'm not optimistic. Um, you know, it, it's one thing to look like a tough negotiator. And, and that's the thing is that um, what the North Koreans, the, what the North Koreans were asking for on the sanctions side um, from what we've been able to parse um, was too big of an ask, um, especially for what they were willing to do. Um, the question is, is could they have gotten to a more, uh, you know, a compromise um, over instead of all of the sectoral, um, you know, alleviating all of the sectoral sanctions in the in the five UN sanctions that they designated? Could we have done maybe like one sector um, or, you know, something along those lines? Um, I, I think if they had more time, um, they probably could have come to a compromise. Um, but, you know, instead of trying to actually deal with that, then, you know, the I feel like they started to, if they're betting, they started to call the bet and say, hey, you need to give us at least, you know, one more facility on the enrichment side. And then, you know, Trump went all in and said, well, why don't you just give us everything and then we'll give you, we'll take off all the sanctions. And it's just, there's no, there's no trust here between our countries to begin with. And so that's, that's an approach that the U.S. has tried before that has always failed to get us anything. Um, and, you know, the, like I said, the rhetoric that's coming out of the administration now in the aftermath of this is veering back towards that approach, veering back towards the, we need to punish North Korea, we need to put more pressure on North Korea to get them to give us everything. Um, and that's the fear, is that, you know, yes, it, it makes him look like a better negotiator. He's not willing to fall for anything. Um, but at the same time, it also looks like now we're more likely to get nothing. So Trump is backing him into a corner, giving him little latitude. And do you think it's likely that he's going to have to send some kind of signal that to get things off center again? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think that the key here is, like I said, the longer it takes to get back to negotiations, the higher the cost is going to be for any kind of deal. Um, the North Koreans are not making it easier uh, by restarting the rebuilding of the facilities at Sohei, um, even though it was never codified in US CPRK talks, it was codified in the inter-Korean talks. Um, where in the Pyongyang Declaration, they can, did can, North Korea did commit to. Can you explain for our audience the inter-Korean talks briefly? Yeah, so um, you know Moon Jae-in and um, Kim Jong-un have had now three rounds of summit meetings. North um, and South meetings. North Korea, South Korea, the inter-Korean um, negotiation process, and so of those, there's been two different declarations. Um, the second one coming out of their summit meeting in Pyongyang in September, um, one of the provisions of that um, of that agreement uh, was that North Korea was going to agree to permanently dismantle the launch pad and engine test stand at the Sohei Satellite Launching Station. Um, so now for North Korea to have restarted and rebuilt those two facilities, because they had started to dismantle them last year, um, for them to start to rebuild those facilities not only goes against, um, you know, sort of a reversal of the unilateral um, confidence building measure that they had offered to America, um, but now is in direct violation 
of the agreement that was made in Pyongyang between the two Koreas. And so, you know, I think this is, you know, a signal to both the U.S. and South Korea that the North Koreans are very frustrated that they have done these things, um, you know, several confidence-building measures, several meetings between the two Koreas. They've done some military confidence-building agreements and measures and implementation, and they've shown, you know, they've consistency in their language about being willing to denuclearize and do all these things. Um, and yet at the same time, the parts that they want the most um, in terms of economic cooperation with South Korea and sanctions relief from U.S., they've got nothing. And I think this is a clear sign that they're frustrated. Um, and if, if people, you know, if the U.S. and South Korea and the allies think that, you know, they can get something for nothing from the North Koreans. The North Koreans are saying, if you give us nothing, we're, we're going to take back even the little bit that we said we would do. Presumably it would have been difficult for Kim to go back home after agreeing to Trump to do even go even further than he's gone, and he's already felt that he's gone too far, without, something, without those sanctions, at least something lifted in return. And I think, you know, there were sanctions measures that had been talked about um, in the pre-summit process uh, that could have helped both the USDPRK and the inter-Korean process. So, you know, some of the measures that they were talking about was, you know, giving exemptions to South Korea to be able to actually start the inter-Korean economic cooperation on the big projects such as Kaesong or uh, the Mount Kumgang Tourist Resort, the Kaesong Industrial Complex, and possibly the um, Inter-Korean Railroads. Those are the major projects that the South Koreans had proposed. Um, so, you know, there were some sanctions alleviation there. And again, I think, you know, North Korea overplayed its hand in asking for the sectoral sanctions on top of that. Um, rather than saying, okay, let's get this in place, let's jumpstart both of these, you know, negotiation processes, um, give us some space to keep negotiating um, and, and move forward. So it's really, it's really unfortunate. Um, and now with this, uh, with the restarting, um, rebuilding of the Sohei satellite launching facility, um, now we also run into the risk of if these, if the launch pad is operational again, for instance. Um, will North Korea try and defy the international community and do another satellite launch, um, as they have in the past, uh, with the with the justifying it as part of their um, space program and not part of the not covered under the missile and nuclear test uh, moratorium, and so this is what derailed the Leap Day deal back in 2012. Um, this distinction between uh, satellite launches and ballistic missiles. Um, and, you know, when they'd given this up as a, as a confidence-building measure and said that they were going to dismantle the launch pad, it, it really closed that loophole and kind of helped um, see a path forward to be able to uh, create the right space for diplomacy to, to take hold. Um, now we're back in the in, in the dangerous situation of if North Korea does go ahead with a satellite launch, then a lot of this falls apart very quickly. It, does that not make it really vitally important for China to stay involved? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I think the it also has to factor into North Korea's calculations. 
Um, because right now, you know, China, North Korea relations, they've been able to repair what they can. Um, and China is a willing partner in, in this um, to support the diplomatic process. Um, and in that there's, you know, political and economic benefits to having repaired that relationship. So, you know, there is a resurgence of um, DPRK, China trade. There is, you know, some education and training going on and, and China's willing to help in order to help support a, a better and more stable political environment. And of course, um, U.S.-China troubled relations plays into it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, although they both sides try to say it, it doesn't, that it's completely separate. Um, but, but I think now, too, with North Korea, even if they're trying to send signals to the U.S. and South Korea, um, I think that, you know, they do have more at stake now than what they've had in the past. And so if they do a satellite launch, um, it not only, you know, upsets the diplomatic process with U.S. and South Korea, but it also upsets the Chinese. And so whatever cooperation and whatever political, you know, relations that they've been able to mend will will dissolve very quickly um, if they go ahead with the satellite launch. And then and then things start to backtrack into what we we saw in 2017. Which brings us to the Sohei facility. And you actually broke that story with your satellite photographs uh, of that facility this week. Tell, tell us about that. Um, so, yeah, so basically um, the North Koreans had pledged to dismantle the engine test stand there. It's not the only engine test stand in North Korea, but it is the largest and it's where they've been testing their large liquid fuel engines. Um, and then uh, also the launch pad, which is the launch pad that they've used for the last three satellite launches that they've attempted. Um, and so this is their showcase um, space facility, satellite facility. They have um, a space center there. Um, they've done, you know, media tours there. Um, they're very proud of it. They've built it up over the years. Uh, and so they had pledged to dismantle it. They started to dismantle it um, about August um, when it when the U.S. CPRK talks seemed to start to stall. That movement on the dismantlement also started to stall, and basically nothing had really been done between August of last year and then February of this year. And so, just before the summit started, about a week before the summit started, um, then we started to see movement, uh, a lot of activity, cars, vehicles coming into the site around February 16th. It looks like the construction had started around like the 18th or so. Um, and it's been pretty rapid construction um, at this site to rebuild the facilities that they had started to dismantle. But why, I'm sorry, Jenny, why would they do that before a summit? Wouldn't that endanger the summit in itself? Well, it, it's a good question. Um, it, it only endangers the summit if they really believed that they were getting something that they wanted. Um, so I think maybe, it. I think it's, maybe a, out of frustration again that they that they weren't getting what they wanted it, it might have been their way of trying to put pressure on the situation um pre-summit pre pre-summit um and and there are some some signs too that you know uh, there's some back and forth uh, of the story as to you know there might have been earlier signs that um that they weren't going to get a deal 
um, and they weren't going to get what they wanted on the sanction side. Um, so it's it's really hard to say, especially since it, it really wasn't detected until after the summit. So, you know, we didn't really notice it until about March 2nd. Um, and uh, so it wasn't like, you know, they might have, sometimes people are like, well, do they know they're, we're watching? And it's like, of course they know that we're watching, um, but we hadn't been watching very closely because nothing had been happening. Well, um, when so you we say really not, I'm sorry to interrupt. When you say not detected, do you mean not detected by you and your organization using commercial right. satellites? Is there any world in which you can't imagine the military was watching that all along? Yeah, no, I'm sure. I'm sure intelligence agencies and militaries, and I think the first reporting of it was actually um, a South Korean intelligence briefing to the South Korean National Assembly had noted that there was movement in this area and, and construction going on at the launch pad. Um, on our side, you know, like uh, I'm sure the U.S. government had probably noticed it, um, but kept it, you know, quiet. No leaks had come out until um, after after the summit had happened, then then it became more public knowledge and then, um, you, you know, all of our open source resources, um, we had to go take a closer look. From what I understand from what you said previously that the, the two main elements of that site are launches and engine testing. Mm -hmm. So there are three possibilities. The North Koreans do nothing at that site in order not to provoke the U.S. They launch a satellite which in itself is not a danger in terms of nuclear weapons because it's not a missile launch site, but for putting satellites into the into space, but still could be provocative. And the third, and I use this as a relative term, might be to have another rocket engine test of that facility. Uh, is that the way you see the possibilities? And do you come down and um, thinking that I, either one might happen? Yeah, well, now any of that is possible. Like, they could just be doing it to, uh, again, put pressure on the situation. I think it's a huge miscalculation on their part as to what they think, how they think the U.S. is going to respond to that. Um, but, you know, they, they could just be refurbishing it so that, you know, it's constantly there. It shows defiance of, you know, if, if for instance, in the inter-Korean dialogue, if they're not going to live up to their end on the economic side, then North Korea doesn't have to live up to their end on um, the on this side, on the denuclearization side, um, and and just leave it there as a here's the looming possibility and also the kind of symbol of the failure of implementation on that side. Um, if they do a satellite launch, obviously it's going to be very agitating. And then the question is, is if they do a satellite launch, would they use the same satellite launch vehicle that they've used in the past? So the last three launches have all used the UNHA body, um, of which, because they've already done three launches of it, um, you know, there's not much more to learn uh, from that uh, from that um, SLV that could be applicable to a military context, to the to missile context. And that's always why this becomes so controversial, these satellite launches versus missile launches, is that there is some similar technologies and there are some things, some diagnostics that you can learn that can have um, application to the military side. Um, but what they've already used, they've basically maxed out the learning process. Um, but if they come in with, an, if they do a satellite launch and use a 
newer um, satellite launch vehicle, a larger satellite launch vehicle, then they can get new information that could be applicable to an ICBM. Um, so there, there, there are many very variations of how upsetting and how provocative a satellite launch could be depending on what it is they're testing or what it is they're launching and when they're doing it, how they do it. But have these satellite launches actually put satellites into space or are they a test of the satellite vehicle? Um, so the last one that they did, they were able to put a satellite into orbit. Um, however, the satellite stopped working relatively soon after it was put into orbit, but they were successful in doing it. Missiles, are they still capable and do they have them ready to go to fire another test that is so provocative, has been so provocative in the past? Oh yeah, they have not stopped, um, you know, they have not stopped manufacturing missiles, they haven't, there's no agreement on the missile side um, for any kind of restrictions or any kind of, of limits on anything. So, you know, they've chosen not to do more missile testing. Um, they certainly have a lot more to learn by doing more missile testing, especially for their longer range missiles. Um, you know, the last ICBM model that they uh, tested um, back in uh, November of 2016, um, the Hwasong-15, the larger um, ICBM, um, you know, they still didn't have, uh, there still was not proof that, for instance, the re-entry vehicle worked, um, and there's there's still a lot more that they need to, to test out if they want to have greater accuracy and reliability. Um, so they have kind of stunted their um, technological development of their longer range missiles um, by doing this moratorium on missile testing. Um, but, uh, you know, there's been no agreement to stop manufacturing. There's been no agreement to stop, you know, R&D in general. It's just the testing phase. Didn't President Trump say that Kim promised him that there would be no more missile testing? He did. Well, he, you know, the moratorium on missile and nuclear testing, it seems to still be in effect. The question is always, you know, does North Korea consider this to include um, satellite launches also? What do you think would happen if they tested a motor, launched a satellite, or did another missile test? Three different results, probably. What, what's your analysis of those possibilities and reactions? Well, obviously the the least provocative would be the engine test. Um, and it would be interesting, you know, to see if they did an engine test and if it was a larger engine than what they've tested in the past, because these are indigenously built engines. Um, and presumably, um, yeah, it, it, it would be concerning, but it wouldn't necessarily be worthy of you know, UN sanctions and, and things like that. If they did either um, a satellite launch or a missile test, um, then it then it goes back to the UN Security Council. Both of these are banned under UN Security Council resolutions, um, are very provocative to the international community and will really damage um, the political will that North Korea has been able to um, build up over the past year of diplomacy um, and so I think it it's really 
you know, North Korea does have something to lose this time by doing it. Um, so it would be a big decision for them to go forward with it. Would they also be risking a U.S. retaliatory attack? I mean, President Trump might feel that he would look pretty silly if he didn't respond directly if that were to happen. <laughs> you, you can't rule it out. Um, but I, I highly doubt it. Um, that that it would go that far. Um, you know, I think the, the default response, of course, is going back to the UN Security Council, issuing more sanctions. Um, you know, the, the price of miscalculation, if you were to do a retaliatory strike, is just too high. Um, and especially, you know, I'm sure even if North Korea does this, that the South Koreans and, and President Moon would still be trying to um, voice restraint in response, um, however upsetting it would be to, and however disruptive it would be to the diplomatic process. How important to Kim is the mindset of the North Korean elite surrounding him? Well, he's not totally immune to it, um, but, you know, at the end of the day, if he wants to do something uh, there's ways he can coerce <laughs> that 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 decision to be prevalent. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, can, can you draw that out a bit? I mean, are you saying that even powerful elite in North Korea would still be afraid to to criticize Kim or Too much, take, take him yeah. on politically? Yeah. No. I, I think there there might be. I'm sure there's some skepticism within the elites as to what's happening and why are we doing this? Why are we going the, down the denuclearization road since we suffered so much to get here? I'm sure there's people who are like, why can't we go faster down the denuclearization road? Like, I, I'm not, you know, I don't think there is a, a monolithic view of the situation in North Korea. Um, but, you know, Kim Jong-un is, is, has to be aware that there are diverse views of this, that there are critics of this, um, but people aren't going to openly criticize him. And those who do um, are going to, you know, at the end of the day, you know, Kim Jong-un is a pretty brutal dictator and can make um, very decisive decisions and, and, you know, purge people pretty easily. Jenny Town, thank you very much for your insights. Great, thank you, it's my pleasure. I've been speaking with Jenny Town, Managing Editor of 38 North, part of the Stimson.org organization, a policy research group based in Washington. If you'd like to find out more about some of the virtually unknown and virtually secret developments that pointed us toward this crisis over many decades, please check out my podcast called Korea, The History Story They Never Told You. If you're listening on podcast, you already know where to find it. If you're watching this on video, the podcast link is below the screen. I'm Mike Lee. Bye for now. The North Korea nuclear arms story. This has been a Mike Lee News Update.